Good morning. My name is Paul Rees, and I'm the lead pastor here at Shard Chapel, and it's great to have you here with us today. There comes times in people's lives where they ask a question like this, is it worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth it to follow Christ? There was a time, of course, uh, in Scotland where to be a Christian was something very respectable, very commendable. Uh, It was the thing you do, you went to church. Uh, It was something that was held in honor. And you only have to walk around the city center of Edinburgh to see all the statues and memorials to Christian people, to even Christian ministers. Um, Guthrie, Thomas Chalmers. Now, it would be almost, well, you couldn't imagine them building a statue to a pastor today. Could you imagine that? Things have dramatically changed. And so now, while Christianity in the past was at the center of our society, it's now moved to the margins. From being the majority view, it's now a minority view. From a time when the biblical values, um, biblical teaching, in a sense, reflected the, the laws and the views of society, well, that's changing dramatically. So that now some of the biblical views are now considered um, hateful, negative, bad, We've come a long way. And now to be a Christian, even in the United Kingdom, is increasingly starting to feel a bit uncomfortable. We're starting to make to be feel a bit more peripheral. I heard recently of a man uh, who's well qualified in his role as a teacher in a Scottish university in the subject of Arabic. And he's been on temporary contracts, and a permanent contract has come up, and yet he's been blocked from getting that job. And actually, as time goes by, his hours in his temporary contract are being reduced. Now, why is this? Well, this man from North Africa grew up as a Muslim, but converted to be a Christian. And this is not going down well with the rest of the faculty who are predominantly Muslim. They're not happy to have him teach Arabic in their department. And so he and his family are having to contemplate leaving Scotland, going elsewhere to get some work because he's a Christian. We have some friends who struggle to have children themselves and so they began the process of adoption in Glasgow. And it was taking forever And one of the social workers, um, candidly and off the record, said, the reason why it's not happening for you is because you're Christians. When they moved to a different part of the United Kingdom, the social work department there was more positive, and they were quickly uh, able to adopt children. In The Spectator uh, recently, there's an article about uh, the Reverend Dr. Alan Clifford, who pastors a church in Norwich. He had the police come and knock on his door, accusing him of engaging in um, homophobic hate speech because he'd been distributing a tract which uh, is titled uh, Christ Can Cure Good News for Gays. And this was considered so incendiary 
that complaints were made and the police went to his door and they said to him, if you uh, say you're guilty, uh, you can pay a 90 pound fine and that'll be it. Like a speed camera, hate crime, I don't know. You can get by. And he refused to accept that. So currently he's, his case is being uh, put forward to the Crown Prosecution Service which is a huge amount of pressure. Now, that's the United Kingdom. And, of course, uh, that's very mild compared to what is happening right now uh, throughout the world, as we were hearing about the challenges in Southeast Asia. Uh, the outgoing chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, in an article about a week ago, spoke of his great concern of the way that Christians are being decimated in countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Sir- Syria, and in Egypt, and he was shocked that the, the press is just not commenting on it. It was the equivalent, he said, in, 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 to sort of a, a religious form of ethnic cleansing. So yes, far tougher things are happening around the world, but we are beginning to feel it being uncomfortable to be a Christian in the UK. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Well, that's why we've come to study this book of First Peter. So I want you to open your Bibles because the context that Peter is writing to has some similarities to our present day context. If you turn to page 1221, you'll, you'll look up 1 Peter chapter 5 and you'll see the reason why he wrote this letter. He gives his purpose at the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 12. page 1,221 in the church Bibles. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So he's writing to Christians also facing that, uh, the, the beginnings of alienation of being ostracized in their own culture, uh, of losing out because of their Christian faith. And so he's writing to encourage them that actually, as Christians, they have the true grace of God. And they should not move away from it. In a sense, the the first part of his book, up to about chapter 2, verse 10, he's looking at this great salvation and spelling it out for them and reminding them that this this is the true grace of God. And then from 2 verse 11 to the end of the book, he's encouraging them how to stand their ground in that sort of environment. And I think this is such a relevant book for us. Even though it's early days, we need to get this book deep into uh, our hearts and our minds to prepare us. Because I think just things are going to get steadily more challenging to be a Christian in this nation. We saw last week his description of Christians. They are elect strangers. They're God's chosen people uh, since they put their faith in Christ. And that has the experience of, of making them strangers in this world. Of experiencing these difficulties. And so the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it being a Christian? Well... Look at what God's word has to say. Let's go back to chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 3 down to verse 9. One Peter chapter 1. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, please keep your Bibles open. Let's just ask God's help again. Father God, we do want to come and ask your help now that you would lift our eyes away from our struggles and our circumstances to see you in all your glory, to realize afresh all that we have in Christ, that we may rejoice that we stand in your true grace and may never move away from it. Please would you speak to each one of us now that we would be confident of Uh, all that you have for us in Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. So he wants to encourage them by reminding them that this is the true grace of God. And he starts off this letter, they're suffering, having tough times. I don't know what you would write at the beginning. I would be tempted to write and say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about all the difficulties you're going through. But what's the first thing he does? He lifts their eyes to see what a great God is their God and what a great salvation that they have. He wants them to see this is amazing grace that they have. Yes, they are strangers in this world and yet they are so blessed. That's what he wants them to see. And so he starts with his great note of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the note that carries through this opening section. It is one of, of great joy. And there are three reasons, at least. There's three major ideas behind this joy that will help them to, to, to keep going when it's tough. Three reasons that will cause them to rejoice, to keep persevering, despite the fact that they're feeling like strangers in the world. First thing, they are to rejoice in their new birth. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. The Christian is not simply somebody who wants to be a bit more religious, who wants to go around being a bit nicer. Uh, The Christian is someone who's been made absolutely brand new by God. That's what this verse is telling us. He has caused us to be born again, is literally what the original language says. That's why he's praising God. He knows it's happened in his life. He knows it's happened in their lives. And he praises God that according to God's amazing mercy, they've been made brand new people on the inside. It's not something that you can do for yourself. 
It's not something that you can work at or achieve. It is all of His mercy. And that's why He praises Him. In His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. I looked up this week about how you, be, how you could become a British citizen. And it's, it's, it's quite an interesting thing to find out how you become a British citizen today. You need to be at least 18 years or older. You need to be of sound mind. You need to be of good character. If you have too many parking fines, you will not get in. I'm serious. Apparently, so you, if, you, if, you, if you want to become a UK citizen, you park well. And the thing that really tickled me, too, was that, that you had to be able to speak reasonably fluently either English, Welsh, or Gaelic. Can you imagine someone in Pakistan learning Gaelic? Kimbrahao. You know, they get, they get, you know, they, they, they get to, you know, get to talk to five people in Lewis. No, there's a bit more than that. But you, you would become a British citizen if you knew Gaelic reasonably fluently. You'd be in. And then you have to pay the relevant fees. And then you have to pass a citizenship exam. And if all goes well, you could have the privilege of becoming a British citizen, having a British passport. Well, there is an easier way to become a British citizen, isn't there? How's that? Well, listen in. You get born to British parents. That's the easiest way. That's how most of us got in. We just had the privilege, the joy of being born to British parents. And then you become a British citizen. And this is what's thrilling Peter's heart. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. That is to say, we now have the rights and the privileges of being citizens of heaven. We no longer, and as, as it were, find our primary identity to be citizens wherever we live, whether that's um, Turkey, uh, Britain, wherever. We're now citizens of heaven. We've been born into it. We've been born into a family where now we can call God our Father. What incredible privileges are ours because of this new birth. And he focuses on two particular privileges, doesn't he? He says, firstly, that we've been, uh, experienced the new birth into, into what? What does it say in the text? A living hope. A living hope. And that really is in contrast to all the ways in this world that offers apparent hopes that really are just dead. There's lots of things in this life that promise to give meaning, purpose, and value. But the truth is, they're just dead hopes. People pursue education. They kind of come to Edinburgh, get a degree and get a job, pursue a career, because uh, that's why I'm going to be fulfilled. That's going to give meaning and purpose to my life. Uh, people pursue entertainment. People pursue relationships. Uh, people pursue all sorts of things in this life to give them hope and meaning and fulfillment. But the point is that none of these things in, the, in of, of themselves will actually deal with the fundamental problems of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame. They will not deal with the fundamental problems that we are dying people, that we get diseases, and they are powerless in the face of death. You can take as many vitamins as you want. You can cycle and run for miles and miles and miles. You, it will not save you from the day of death. 
All these things are dead hopes. And what a joy and a privilege belongs to those who've experienced the new birth because they have the privilege of a living hope. And we have a living hope because we have an ever-living Savior. That's the point. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died, was put in a tomb, and he walked out. He rose again, bodily, really, for eternity. And this gives us profound hope that this life is not all that there is. That these dying, decaying bodies is not just what life's about because we have an ever-living Savior. We have a living hope now. And that just changes everything about how we live. It reorientates our, it gives us meaning and purpose and fulfillment. It reorientates our lives because we don't go through life in fear. In fact, we can go through life with great courage. We can go to difficult and dangerous parts of the world where actually our lives might be foreshortened for following Christ. It does not matter for death is not the end. We have a living hope because we have an ever-living Savior. What an awesome thing to have that. More than that, he says, a living hope and what else? An inheritance. An eternal inheritance. I don't know whether you've ever had that fantasy that uh, you have the knock on the door. It's not the police this time. It's um, it's some lawyer who's tracked you down, and that there's some, you know, great great uncle who, uh, who well, some uncle you don't know. He'd be dead. Be great great uncle. Some some uncle who's died that you never knew of, and you are the sole person left, and and he's come to tell you you have inherited a, a huge house that looks like Downton Abbey. And has given and, and, and inherited ten million pounds, and it's and it's yours. Have you ever had that little fantasy? Just me, then. Okay. <laughs> and, and in the garages, there's a fleet of supercars. There's Ferraris. There's. I mean, it's a great dream. The problem with that, of course, is you know what? The, the, a big house like that is a nightmare to heat. That ten million would burn quite quickly. And it starts to get dilapidated and falling down. That's why most of these large houses have been donated to, uh, to the government or to cities because they can't really afford to keep them up. The cars rust or get stolen. Interest, inflation, it's, everything gets eaten away. The truth is, however great that was, it would all be passing. And when you die, you take none of it with you. And Peter wants to remind them, even though they're feeling ostracized from their culture, that they're strangers in the world, look at the awesome privileges of being God's elect. Look at the privilege of this new birth. You have a living hope and an eternal inheritance. The thing about this inheritance is it it will not perish. It will not spoil. It will not fade. It is unspoiled by sin. It will never dim. It is something that actually goes before you. It is yours for eternity. And I don't care how much you accumulate in this life. It will not compare to the glory of this eternal inheritance that is ours forever. And, and, and these thoughts just cause Peter to start off and he can't help but praising God. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What awesome blessings are ours because of the new birth. How incredible. And this inheritance, it says in verse 4, is being kept in heaven for us. 
and verse 5, we are being kept for that day. Uh, Through faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, That shielded is an idea of like a garrison city surrounded by crack SAS troops. And there you are in the middle. No one's coming in and no one's going out. You are protected for that day to gain that inheritance. It is guaranteed. It is ours and is a source of great joy. My friends, when we begin to um, feel the pressure and feel the cost of being a Christian, remember this. Living hope and eternal inheritance. More than that, he, he says that there's great joy even in spite of suffering, verses 6 to 7. Look at verse 6. In this, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He acknowledges that it is tough to be a stranger in this world. There are sufferings that come for being a Christian. But notice what he does say about it. Here's the perspective. This suffering is only now for a little while. As we stand on that final day when all history is over and eternity begins, this little while will seem so very, very small compared to that day. Even in this life, we're willing to put up with uh, suffering now to extend our life. We'll go through rough treatments and difficult times. Just think, well, it's for a short time, just for the benefits of, of, of longer-term health. Well, here's Peter's perspective. Whatever suffering we may have to experience now for Christ, it is just a little while compared to the awesomeness of all eternity. And the other thing he says about this suffering is that they can rejoice uh, in spite of suffering because they know that this suffering is not pointless. It is not wasted. Look at the next verse, verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. What's the most precious thing you've got? What's the most precious thing you've got right now? I would be be tempted to think, well, I've got a really nice guitar. Uh, I've bought a really nice road bike. Uh, Wrong. Oh, yeah, I'm married. My wife... She's really precious. That is probably that is the most precious thing I've ever been entrusted with. But actually, that's not the most precious thing. It's your faith in Christ. To God, your faith in Christ is the most precious thing. Read through the gospel accounts, and it's amazing to see what delights Jesus. Um, Jesus meets a centurion, and his centurion comes to him and says, I've got a slave who's really sick. And uh, would you come and heal him? But you don't need to come home with me, Jesus. I, I'm a man uh, who has people under me. I order them to do things. I'm a man under authority. I do what they say. And all you have to do is say the words, and he'll be healed. And, and uh, Jesus remarks, oh, what great faith. Faith like I've never seen amongst Israel. What great faith. There's a Canaanite woman. And she shows great humility in her response to Jesus. It seems to put her off about her request to deal with her daughter. And, and, and she gives a very humble response. And he says, oh woman, you have great faith. God delights in our trust in him. 
It is very precious. It is more precious than gold. And here is one of the things that happen when we experience suffering for following Christ. It is like uh, a furnace where you drop kind of bits of uh, rock in uh, that uh, contain gold within it. And all the rubbish uh, is kind of burnt away and the gold comes up to the surface. These trials purify our faith, make our faith uh, more solid, remove its impurities, uh, have a firmer grip on this salvation. And so, Peter says, actually, you can rejoice even in suffering because you know even that suffering is helping you have a firmer grip on this salvation. The fact is, if you persevere in trusting Christ uh, through difficulties, you know what it shows? It shows you the real deal. It shows you the genuine article. It shows you've got saving faith. You know what happens when persecution comes to countries? Uh, those who went to church because it was the right thing to do, stop going. And the only people who want to gather are those who know and love the Lord Jesus. That's true, isn't it? Why else would you go? If it doesn't benefit you any, for any other reason. Well, if you persevere under suffering and adversity, uh, even that... Can, and, and you're still trusting Christ, even that can be a source of joy because you really are trusting Christ. You really will experience his salvation. And, and as, he, as he writes to these people who would have ex experienced being ostracized in their culture where they wouldn't have been applauded and wouldn't have been thanked, look what he says to them uh, in verse 7, that you would be proved genuine and will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This world doesn't give you praise, honor, and glory. Don't worry. If you're trusting Christ, there's a day coming when you will experience praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. How I've delighted in your trustworthiness and your faith. It'll be worth it on that final day. Thirdly, there is the joy of knowing the Savior in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And I fill with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter had seen Jesus. He'd been an eyewitness of Jesus. He'd been called right at the beginning. He'd been in the inner circle. He'd seen things even some of the other disciples had not seen. And he knew what a remarkable person Jesus is. He'd seen him walk on water. He'd seen him feed uh, the multitudes. He'd seen them touch the leper. He'd seen his compassion. He'd heard the awesome teaching. And Peter came to love Jesus. There was no person like Jesus for Peter. In the, in the, in the, in the suffering of the trial, he, he denied Jesus. And he had that walk with Jesus on, on, after resurrection, didn't he, along the beach. And Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know. You know I love you. Peter had seen him. 
and knew there was every reason to love this Jesus, this King and Savior. And he remarks how, that it's extraordinary that these people he's writing to, these Christians dispersed uh, in these territories, that is modern-day Turkey, and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. This is one of the fundamental marks. You've experienced the new birth. Uh, before you're a Christian, Jesus maybe is just a swear word. He's nothing. He's a, you know, at best, he's a moral teacher that you might take mild interest in. But when you're born again, you recognize that he is uh, your king, your savior, your brother, your captain. And you love him. I don't know whether you remember being a teenager and that first relationship and uh, maybe that experience of your friends sort of mocking you, mocking you because they, they hadn't got the courage to ask anyone yet themselves, uh, but they're mocking you, oh, what are you doing, oh, make fun of you, and, and you say, well, I, I don't care whether you make fun of me, I love them, I love them. Well, this is the fundamental thing that will hold us and keep us in the hardship and adversity that might come from being a Christian. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what loss I might suffer. I love him. That is the fundamental motive that will keep the Christian persevering. To know the privilege of, of Christ as my Lord and Savior. Yes, we do not see him now. But here's the wonderful thing. We will see him then. Uh, I began this relationship with Sharon. I was in London. She was in Glasgow. We used to write a lot. But then there were those exciting weekends where she'd come down on the bus, where I'd go up there, and I'd get to see her. The joy for the Christian comes that we know that there is a day when we will see him face to face. Our best friends... Our loving spouses will be nothing compared to the joy of him, seeing him, knowing him truly. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because we know that there is a day coming when he will be revealed in all his glory to the world. There's a, there's a day when he will return. We've been singing about it in our songs earlier. And on that day, the world will look so very foolish to oppose Christ because he will come in his glory uh, and, and, and in his victory. And the kingdom of God will be ushered in. And those who stood faithful and true will be welcomed uh, by his side. And those who have been in opposition will, will run in fear. And it will be so foolish to have lived your life in opposition to Jesus. And it will be so glorious on that day to, to see his smile and to know that we are with him who is the king of all eternity. And, and the thought of that, the, the looking forward to that day, the glimpses of the glory of that day at times do come back into our present experience. There are times when we freshly perceive the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. I don't know um, how it is for you, but I can think about particular moments in my life where uh, I felt low or challenged and I've reflected on the gospel and I've been singing God's praises and God seems to break in 
and I've known an overwhelming joy. It's better than any other joy I've known. And it's got a taste of glory about it. And you long that it would be like that all the time, but it, it's not now in this life. It, it's, it's been infrequent. Most of my life, I, I have a steady, settled joy that sometimes doesn't reach my, my, my smiley face. But we get occasional glimpses of that joy. And we look forward to the day when that joy will never end. And it's coming. What a glorious day. We've been singing about it. And my question to you this morning is, do you know this joy? Do you know this joy? Well, the answer could be no. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you love Jesus? The answer might be no. I don't love Jesus. Well, I I would say that was an indication that you're not born again. And I want to urge you that the best that this world has to offer is so limited, so fading, so fleeting. Why would you choose that when you could have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade? Why would you not lay hold of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him in his mercy to forgive you for your sins? Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world yet lose his soul? Bad deal to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Bad deal. The answer is yes. Yes, you do know something of that joy. Can I encourage you? Um, in your present sufferings and present hardships and whatever difficulties may come, and if the policeman does come knocking on our door at some stage, we need to come and open this letter of First Peter and remember that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come we should remember the privilege that is ours because of the new birth that we're citizens of heaven that we have a living hope an eternal inheritance that even the hardships are used by God to strengthen our faith to show that we're the real deal that we will uh, be caught up in this day of his revelation where we'll experience the full salvation that he's come to bring us Maybe you're saying, well, I love him. I love him a little and I want to love him more. That's a sign that you're born again. You desire to love him more. You know that your love is weak and pale. And what I can say is, look, we need to spend more time gazing at the glory of Jesus. We need to spend more time reflecting on these truths. Thank you for the privilege of forcing me to preach this week. See? I would be such a lazy son of a gun if I wasn't paid to preach. I would not study the Bible as much. But the fact that I'm expected to be here really puts some pressure on. So this week I was forced to reflect on what an awesome salvation this is. So thank you for that. It is so much better than any sufferings we may experience as a consequence. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Let's pray.